No matter who Oklahoma was going to match up with inside the college football playoff, the Sooners' chances of victory were going to be pretty low. The top three teams, LSU, Ohio State, and Clemson, have all had significantly better seasons than Oklahoma. All three teams have also been much more dominant than the Sooners. But the playoff has four teams, and Oklahoma earned that fourth spot. Here we are, about a week away from kickoff, and OU's chances of winning are even lower now. That's because Ronnie Perkins, Ramondre Stevenson, and Trajan Bridges will be suspended when the Sooners play LSU. Credit to Sooner Scoop for breaking the story Wednesday. Other outlets have also picked up on the story and have confirmed the suspensions. And for what it's worth, based on what I've heard independently, this is all true. But again, props to Kerry Murdoch over at Sooner Scoop for being the first one on this. It's important in this business to give credit where credit is due. I was at Lincoln Riley's press conference Wednesday afternoon, which is when Sooner Scoop tweeted the names of who will be suspended for the Peach Bowl. I realize some of you listening don't care about this stuff, but I'd like to now praise the Oklahoma Beat media crew for asking Lincoln Riley some really good questions. Riley said he's aware of the report out there, but he couldn't comment at this time. The most revealing answer Riley gave came from this exchange with Barry Trammell. Lincoln is Kennedy Brooks going to play in the Peach Bowl? And, Kennedy will play. Yes. And uh, Ramon Day Stevenson, will he play also? Uh, Kennedy Brooks will play. Later, friend of the pod, John Hoover, asked Riley to clarify the status of Ronnie Perkins for the Peach Bowl, and Riley said he wouldn't comment any further, then said he was sorry. I added that last detail because I thought Lincoln Riley handled the press conference very well on Wednesday, considering that setting is normally there for him to brag about the signing class he just brought in, which, as I record this, is ranked 12th in the nation, according to rivals. Obviously, the loss of Perkins and Stevenson are the biggest blows. Bridges has been a staple on special teams, but his role in the offense in 2019 has not been as big as I thought it would be. OU's defense is not as good without Perkins, and OU's offense is not as good without Stevenson. That's pretty clear. Also, this whole thing is an annoying distraction leading up to the biggest game of the season. Riley talked about distractions in general Wednesday. This whole game, all these playoffs are, you know, are a huge distraction. I mean, there's, there's a million different distractions right now getting prepared for this, and uh, that's the team a lot of times that can handle those the best is, is going to be the most equipped coming into it. So um, that's, you know, we've had... We've had challenges all year. We've had challenges of, you know, whether you lose a player to an injury or new players, this or that. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of how it goes. And so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll handle it the way we have, and we'll be ready to play. You know, the last two years, I really thought the Sooners had a good shot to win in the playoff. Certainly more so two years ago in the Rose Bowl against Georgia. But even last year against Alabama, as a massive underdog, I did think Oklahoma had a shot because of Kyler Murray and that explosive offense. This year, when the playoff matchups were announced earlier this month, I didn't have a good feeling that Oklahoma would be able to win its playoff game, no matter who the Sooners played. And now we've found out Oklahoma will be at less than full strength on defense against the best offense in college football, and less than full strength on offense against an LSU defense that's playing its best football of the year right now. To quote one of my favorite moments in the brilliant television show Mad Men, not great, Bob. You know what? I got to play that drop for you just for effect. How are you? Not great, Bob. Nobody expects Oklahoma to win this game, let alone keep this game close. I'd like to think that's a positive for this team going into this contest. The nobody believes in us card is a real thing. But what's also a real thing is that talent usually wins out. And LSU is more talented right now than Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley, Alex Grinch. Time for you guys to pull a rabbit out of your hat. I'm Lee Benson. This is West of Everest. No intro today in a bit of a time crunch, so I want to get going with this episode. Going to be no back and forth with Grant on this show because our recording schedules just could not work out the rest of the week. However, I do have some audio clips to play from Grant that he recorded a day ago. He has thoughts on all the suspension stuff, and Grant also has thoughts on Oklahoma's 2020 signing class. I'll play some more sound from Wednesday. We'll hear from Jalen Hurts, Creed Humphrey, and Alex Grinch. 
Also, LSU may be without one of its best offensive players in the Peach Bowl. The latest details on that story coming up in the show. And I've watched the LSU-Florida game. I'll give you my takeaways from that contest and let you know ways in which I think Oklahoma may be able to attack the Tigers on defense based on what I saw from that film. Just a reminder, you can find us on Facebook. Just search West of Everest. We are there. If you like the Facebook page, you'll stay up to date with show updates. And also, you'll be able to interact with us on the West of Everest Facebook page and leave us those three-word reviews. I know you guys like to leave. Also, I am on Twitter, at Lee Benson News 9. Also, another good place for three-word reviews. Grant is at Grant Benson 25 on Twitter. And you can email the show, westofeverest at gmail.com. I have checked the email recently. Basically, what I'm learning is that most of you prefer to interact with us on Facebook and Twitter, which actually is for the best. Okay, first order of business. Talented LSU running back Clyde Edwards-Hilaire injured his hamstring in practice this week, and his status for the Peach Bowl is uncertain. This was confirmed by Ed Orgeron earlier this week. Edwards-Hilaire, really good player, nearly 1,300 yards, 16 touchdowns on the ground this season. He's also a threat out of the backfield, 50 catches, 400 yards, and a touchdown there. Grant said last show that Edward Solaire reminded him of former Iowa State running back David Montgomery, and I definitely see that. However, as I was watching the LSU-Florida game from October yesterday, it hit me. Clyde Edward Solaire reminds me of Quentin Griffin. I tweeted out the play from that game that made it click for me, and if you go to my Twitter account, at Lee Benson News 9, it's up there. You can watch it back, and it probably helps also that Edward Solaire wears number 22 just like Q wore. So if that guy's unable to play or he's not at 100%, look for LSU to go with a committee, a committee approach at running back against the Sooners. Orgeron even said this week that LSU may need three guys just to do what Edwards Hilaire normally does for his team. And from what I can tell so far, look for a guy named Tyrion or Tyrion Davis-Price. Not really sure how you pronounce his first name. He's the first man up, I believe, if Edwards Hilaire is not going to play. Davis Price is a freshman. I saw him score a long touchdown run against Florida, and apparently LSU only recruits running backs with hyphenated last names. Okay, so all of you now know about LSU's running back situation, and of course, you're also very aware of the Oklahoma suspension stuff. With that, I'm going to play the first piece of audio I have from Grant. Hey, everyone. So I want to talk about... Um the news that broke today, a really, really huge news day um, in regards to the Peach Bowl, to be totally honest with you. Today, in regards to Oklahoma and LSU, today is, is Wednesday, uh, the, uh, the 18th, and just a whole lot of news broke today. It's also National Signing Day, uh, of course, as well. Um, but the first thing I want to talk about, uh, of course, is, is the news that broke today that we alluded to in, in, in the podcast earlier this week. Um, that there are, in fact, at least three players suspended for the Peach Bowl. Um, I will be totally honest with you. Um, I was expecting something a little more severe, and there actually might be uh, some more names come out in the future that we haven't heard yet. So I, I do want everybody to keep an eye out on that because I'm not sure if we're totally out of the weeds yet. Uh, but, of course, the three players that are going to be suspended for the Peach Bowl are Ronnie Perkins, Ramondre Stevenson, and Trajan Bridges, or at least those are the ones that we know of right now. So I just want to kind of go person by person. And I'm not going to speculate on what happened, what they did, or anything like that. If you want any information, you can just go online. You can find out uh, what what they are alleged to have done. Um, but but first of all, I think when you look at that list of three players, obviously the biggest loss is Ronnie Perkins. And, and this is the one that I was the most concerned about. I've been beating the drum uh, for a while now that if OU, if they really wanted to win a game in the playoffs, that playing LSU was was definitely their best matchup. My reasoning for that was uh, because the the best the best unit on Oklahoma's team this season has been their defensive line on offense or defense, in my opinion. And I think where LSU is the weakest on their team is actually in the trenches. Now they do they don't have a bad offensive line by any stretch of the imagination, but they can still be had the. Burrow actually has had a lot of pressure on him this year. He's been sacked 28 times, um, which which is, you know, as as much as he drops back, that's not an absurd amount, but it is proof that he can be had if you have a pretty good pass rush up front, and really that is what Oklahoma's defensive line represents, and uh, Ronnie Perkins is the best pass rusher up front of all of those guys, so I think his absence is going to be felt a lot, and so my somber mood yesterday was basically under the assumption of 
hey, I, I've, I've always kind of thought that OU's defensive line performing well against LSU's offensive line was really their ticket to victory in this game. That's if they were going to stop LSU and if they were going to get stops, it was going to be because of their defensive line. And in my thought, my thought process, thinking that if Ronnie Perkins is out, it's just going to make that a whole lot more difficult. Ronnie Perkins does take on a lot of double teams. He's been able to free up uh, Nick Benito a lot in, the, in November in the last kind of quarter of the season. Of course, he helps with you know with Neville Gallimore, who also sees lots of double teams and whatnot. And so going forward, this is going to be interesting to see what they do to to maybe replace Ronnie Perkins' production. Do they slide Jalen Ray, uh, Redmond over to the end to have him play end, or is he going to stay inside? Or do you roll with Marcus Stripling and Isaiah Thomas? Um, when you really think about it, that's kind of a scary proposition, right? Because those are two guys who, and I know they showed flashes. Uh, Isaiah Thomas had a sack in the Big 12 championship game. Stripling has shown flashes all season long in, in pretty limited minutes. So I'm going to be really curious to see what they do. Do they move Jalen Redmond over and just have Leron Stokes play inside? Um, it, it's possible. We'll, we'll see. So I, 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 but you know, overall, I think that is by far the biggest loss and is, is, is a massive loss. I, that's just, I, I'm not sure they can replace what Ronnie Perkins has done this season and not even necessarily as a pass rusher. He's the, I think he's their best run defender as well. And so I, I'm curious to see if, if LSU will try to take advantage of that. But the bottom line is it's going to make LSU's offensive line is going to make their job a lot easier in pass protection because they're not going to have to worry about Ronnie Perkins. And so what you're talking about is you really need Neville Gallimore and Jalen Redmond to step up and also Kenneth Murray to some extent because I, I, I do think that Alex Grinch is going to have him um, in an attacking role for a large portion of this game. I think he's going to be rushing the passer a lot. Um, moving on to the offensive side of the ball, Ramondre Stevenson being out. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people might look at this and say, hey, maybe not that big of a deal. He's their, you know, he's the backup running back. But I think Stevenson has really come on in the last quarter of the season and, and actually has been fantastic. Just as a good change of pace from Kennedy Brooks. And Kennedy Brooks has been great too. Uh, but I think everyone would agree that Ramondre just kind of has a different gear. And there's just, you can just, whenever he touches the ball and he's in open space, you just see the talent dripping off of him. And if you want to go into the college football playoff, you want to beat teams like LSU, you need guys like Ramondre Stevenson to make plays. Or you need as many guys like him as humanly possible. So when you remove him from the equation, uh, I'm concerned a little bit. My visions of Oklahoma winning this game absolutely involves Ramondre Stevenson playing a pretty big role. I thought maybe this was a really good chance for his coming out party on a national stage, and that clearly is not going to happen. Moving on to Trajan Bridges, I think obviously that's that's the one that you can that you can look at, and it's like okay, we we can we can manage that one. But at the same time, Trajan Bridges arguably has been Oklahoma's best special teams player this season. He's been if you just watch him on kickoff coverage, he flies down the field and he he throws his nose in there and he is not shy at all. Um, so that's that's not great. And of course, like I said, I, I think it's possible that we may actually have some more guys come down the pipe as well that we just aren't privy to yet. So keep an eye out for that. I'm not, you know, I, I know the same information as everyone else, and so I'm sure, you know, um, I'm sure everyone else can find that info too. That there may be some more guys that we find out about um, the severity of which or, or who who it is. I I don't know, but I, I think there might be some guys uh, more coming down the pipe. Uh, but of course, all of this. Um, Let's see here. Um, Sooner Scoop was the ones who uh, who did uh, officially report this. It was during Lincoln Riley's press conference. There was actually a pretty uh, a pretty clever line of questioning in that. What they did is they asked, uh, and I'm not sure who who it was. I'm sure Lee might mention uh, who asked this question, but somebody asked a question about Kennedy Brooks, which is which is a smart question because Brooks did leave the Big Twelve Championship game, which I think with what everybody assumes was a concussion. Um, Lincoln Riley did say that Kennedy Brooks would play, and then the follow-up question to that was, what about Ramondre Stevenson? And, and Lincoln Riley said, Kennedy Brooks will play. And pretty much right after that, that's when the Sooner Scoop Twitter account tweeted out uh, those three names. So I'm assuming that they took that as pretty much confirmation uh, that Ramondre Stevenson was one of the guys, and I think once they found that out, they were comfortable running with the other two names that they had there. So I want to give a hat tip to those guys for breaking the story. Um, and also, like I said, uh, Lincoln Riley wasn't touching any of it. He acknowledged that the rumors exist and that he, he knew about them, but he said that he's not, he's, he's unable to comment. And to be totally honest with you, I, I don't expect a comment until very, very close, uh, to kickoff on the flip side of all of this, 
was the news, uh, and, and I'm not sure if Lee is going to go too much in, into this because this is still, uh, it's not as reported now as, as, the, as the Perkins Bridges and, and Stevenson news. Um, and it also started very much like that other news as a message board rumor, except on LSU message boards. But since then, more news has come out, and it's looking like where there is smoke, there is certainly fire. And guys, it is looking very, very uh, much like LSU is going to be without their second most important player, Clyde Edwards Helaire, in this game. And my and and first of all, you hate the fact that it looks like that he and it looks like he's injured. Uh, they're saying that it's a hamstring injury. They don't know the severity of it yet. But I'm just saying on on those LSU message boards, there's a lot of guys who seem to be in the know, who have lots of posts, who have lots of history there, saying that guys he's he's done for the playoffs and it's a severe injury. So I I, I think I think Clyde Edwards Elair guys is is also going to be out of this game. And so the first thought is one, like I mean that sucks for the for for the kid obviously, uh, but from a from a competition standpoint, this is almost kind of kind of even now. Uh, I think I think Ronnie Perkins being out. And Clyde Edwards Elair being out, I think at, at worst is a wash now in terms of guys being out. Um, and this really is going to affect what LSU wants to do on offense. Clyde Edwards Elair has 250 touches this season. He's got about 100, he's, he's got near 200 carries for about 1,300 yards. He's also caught 15 passes for, uh, for close to 400 yards. So this is a guy who is very, very prominent uh, in, in their offense and just. Just watch Alabama tape, and you saw what kind of player he is. We likened him a lot to David Montgomery, and I think he's every bit the player David Montgomery is, if not a little more explosive and athletic uh, than David Montgomery as well. He's also a very, very big part in pass protection. That's that's one of his specialties, and that no longer is going to be uh, presumably or uh, allegedly that is something that LSU is not going to be able to rely on in this game. And uh, his two backups are two true freshmen. And presumably, guys who are highly touted, highly recruited, and probably have a lot of talent. But when when Edwards Elair was such a massive part of their team uh, this season, you you don't just replace that under two weeks. So that that's absolutely going to be something that LSU is going to have to adjust to. And I, I they're not going to be at full strength. Their, their offense is not going to be able to attack OU in in ways that they would be able to if if Edwards Elair was there. And so this is uh, this is a massive loss for LSU because I think it's going to allow Oklahoma to really focus in more on the pass and and I just I have a hard time believing that the guys behind him are as adept at, at breaking arm tackles as Edwards Elair was who is very good at that. So on a day where OU got some confirmation of some bad news about suspended players, uh, LSU got some bad news of their own. Their second most important player. Is, is, is very likely, it looks like, not going to be playing in the Peach Bowl. Um, so in, in, my, in my eyes, guys, um, I, I, think, I think the chances of OU winning this game return right back to where they were when both teams were at full strength. Uh, that's, that's how big of a loss this is for LSU. Um, and so I, let's, let's play ball. Uh, this is a game that I think is now is, is winnable again. And uh, it's going to reinvigorate me a little bit and... and Kind of looking at what what LSU does, because I have a I have a pretty sneaking suspicion that as soon as I go in and watch more tape, Clyde Edwards Elair, especially in the second half of their season, is going to play a major role in what LSU wants to do and also the success of their offense. Um, so, really, really interesting day um, to go along with National Signing Day. Just so much news and. Um, Man, I, I th- this is one of these days I think that makes college football really interesting to follow uh, because you, you never know. You, you just never know what's going to happen. All right, so those are Grant's thoughts on the suspensions and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, which we got to figure out how we're going to pronounce this guy's name because we're both pronouncing it differently. And I got I got some some things to say, and it's a shame that Grant's not on the podcast to go back and forth with this. But uh, So first off, I want to start. I was kind of taking notes as I was listening to that. The first thing... Uh, Grant mentioned that he thinks that there's a chance that Kenneth Murray will be asked to rush the passer quite a quite a bit in this game, and I have I don't see that happening. I don't see him rushing the passer any more than he has, or taking on a role more. Uh, and that's just because you're playing with fire. If you're gonna gonna send Kenneth Murray uh, presumably off the edge, uh, even from the middle, 
quite a bit because Joe Burrow is so good at extending plays and picking up positive yards when nothing is there and, and, and eluding and evading pressure that if Murray's not there in the middle of the field, that's a lot of space for Joe Burrow to pull the ball down and scramble. So you're playing with fire if you're going to send Murray a lot. That means that if he doesn't get there, that play is going to break down pretty pretty badly for Oklahoma. So I, I just I don't see that right now. Uh, I don't see Kenneth Murray being any more of a pass rusher than he has been throughout the the extent of this season. Uh, let's see. The next thing that I want to comment on, let's see, uh, Clyde Edwards-Solaire. And there's no doubt that he is, is a pretty awesome running back. However, I I disagree big time. So far, watching you know fully two games with Grant, uh, there's no way that he is their second most important offensive player. It goes Joe Burrow and the two big-time wide receivers, the offensive linemen, uh, you know, and, and then maybe him. I mean, he's a running back, and it's a position that is not as important in this LSU offense as as I was just kind of going along the list, quarterback, wide receiver, maybe even tight end. And I think that it's certainly a downgrade for LSU. There's no doubt about that. But LSU's offense can still be plenty explosive against Oklahoma's defense without their starting running back. And as I watch more tape leading up to the game, I'll be interested to see how the other LSU running backs look when they're put into the games to spell Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. So Grant and I disagree on, on his importance. He's a really good player. But again, he's a running back, and this is an offense that's that's run through Joe Burrow, and those wide receivers are so good. There's a lot of inside zone. That's all what they run, and I think a big reason why it's been successful a lot of times is people are scared to death of the pass, and the offensive line blocks it up well for Edwards Hilaire, and a backup running back or a third string running back, not going to be as good as him, but will still probably be able to find a decent amount of creases in lanes because of how effective LSU can be through the air so uh, I am not going to say what Grant said is as far as it's now back to even as far as it, it's a wash of Perkins being out and Edwards Hilaire being out uh, and by the way you could probably tell Grant recorded that back on Wednesday so there's been a little bit more information that's come out with Clyde Edwards Hilaire and uh, if the message board people that Grant referenced it sounds like maybe he, he will be out for the game but that has not been confirmed and lastly, uh, this is something that's brand new to Friday night as I record this and got to give credit to the football brainiacs and also Sooner Scoop has reported this as well. And not going to have Grant commenting on this right now. We'll get him later when he's back on the podcast. But this is a this is a killer. Grant texted me about this actually earlier today as well. Delarian Turner yell. According to Sooner Scoop, and again, I believe uh, the football brainiacs had this as well, had this first broken collarbone, and he is not going to play in the Peach Bowl. So Justin Broyles is next man up at strong safety, and Delarian Turner Yell and Pat Fields, the two main safeties, the depth at safety we all know has been pretty bad this year. Those two players have played basically the entire season. Delarian Turner Yell missing this game is just another terrible blow to this Oklahoma defense they've lost a best pass rusher up front and now it's lost one of its starting safeties and Justin Broyles hopefully he can come in and play well but that is against a high-powered offense passing offense like this that's just a killer an absolute killer so that's just that's new today new tonight I don't have Grant commenting on the Larry and Turner yell but uh you all know about this by the time you're hearing this podcast, so it'd be weird if I didn't bring it up. So again, credit to Sooner Scoop and the Football Brainiacs for having that story on Friday. Um, man, that uh, I mean, I it's really difficult to imagine Oklahoma's pass defense being really good because LSU creates situations where they stress safeties especially in split safety looks and that's what Oklahoma likes to do so I don't know what Alex Trench is going to do how this will change the way he schemes up LSU will he play more cover three to get a little more help in the back end which will open up more space underneath for LSU I don't know this is kind of still new to me I haven't formulated my full thoughts on Delarian Turner Yell but uh, certainly a massive blow to the Oklahoma secondary 
So as we continue here on this podcast, let's go back to Wednesday's presser and player media availabilities. And yes, I'm well aware that Wednesday was National Signing Day, and I'm well aware that Oklahoma signed 20 players, and I'm well aware that running back Jace McClellan flipped to Alabama. And on McClellan, he had been committed to Oklahoma since July of 2017. So two and a half years later, he changes his mind and signs with Alabama. I realize instances like this don't happen all the time, but for me, this is just another reason why I've just I've never been able to get into recruiting outside of the main recruiting days, which is basically National Signing Day. And now, of course, in February, the original National Signing Day, but now that's like the second National Signing Day. I just I it's just not it's not for me. Uh, part of my job is knowing about this, so I, I make sure that I, I understand the basics, but if you listen to this podcast or a long listener, you know that that's not our thing. Uh, so it's it's a bizarre situation that two and a half years ago, a guy committed and now he is on a, a, a different team. And I remember when Grant and I began this podcast just before the 2017 season, I think Grant brought up McClellan committing to Oklahoma. But I believe he also mentioned that McClellan's not going to be able to sign for a couple of years. McClellan had been committed to the Sooners longer than this podcast has been around. And now he's heading to Tuscaloosa. So good for him. I wish the guy best of luck. I don't know anything about the guy. I know he's a really good player. Uh, I just think it's weird to commit to a school during, I believe it would have been his sophomore season when it happened. There's just not a whole lot of reasons to lock yourself in so early. You know, you can kind of let things play out. You're going to grow as a person, as a player from your sophomore year to your junior year. And obviously, you'll grow even more to your senior year if you need to wait that long. But at the same time, though, what do I know? Recruiting is not my forte. So maybe there's a reason why these kids commit this early. I believe I've heard, you know, with quarterbacks, it's important to commit early because coaches want to make sure they get their quarterback for certain classes and you can kind of be the the leader of that class. So I get it kind of with quarterbacks, but running back wise, other positions maybe there's a reason why to commit early but I, I just don't get it so forgive my ignorance on that so again if you're a longtime listener you know this is not a recruiting podcast we've never pretended to be a recruiting podcast if that's your thing there are plenty of other podcasts listens to, uh, to listen to out there and that's totally cool with us because of that I don't have any interesting thoughts on Oklahoma's 2020 recruiting class it sounds like Lincoln Riley's excited about the five offensive linemen he's getting which that's obviously good news. Hopefully, Bill Biedenbow isn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. And it also sounds like Alex Grinch got some players that fit more into the mold of his speed D type system. That's obviously good news as well. Grant does tend to be a little bit more into recruiting than I am. So he's recorded his thoughts on both the offensive players the Sooners have signed and also the defensive players. I'm going to play his thoughts on the offensive guys right now, and then later in the show, just to kind of break things up a bit, I'll play his thoughts on the defensive players. But first, let's get Grant's takeaways from Oklahoma's offensive signing class. All right, guys, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the the offensive signing class that was just signed today on uh, on uh, you know early signing period, and I'm sure there's going to be more that that come between now and February. But you know, for the most part, this class is complete. And what else to say other than it looks like another really great offensive class uh, because the crown, jewel, the crown jewel of this class is the offensive line, uh, you know, headlined by Nate Anderson and Andrew Rame. Uh, also, Aaron Parks is another big name, and I know there's a Noah Nelson out of Arizona, uh, but a lot of people saying this is the best offensive line class that Bill Biedenboe has ever signed. Um, we don't need to give you our, you know, our spiel on recruiting. Lee and I are very, very outspoken about it. We don't not about recruiting in general. We just we don't know a lot about recruiting. Um, we're not we're not scared to say that we don't. And so, pretty much any sort of any sort of uh, thoughts that we're going to have are, are basically going to be, you know, copied off of people who know what they're talking about. Um, and of course, if I ever see anything like on tape or anything that I just that really jumps out to me, I'll I'll say my you know I'll I'll say my piece. But I, I don't I don't want anybody to take my word as the gospel on recruits because frankly speaking, there's professionals that just do a lot better job than I do. Um, but having that been said, I, I do know the offensive line class is a big deal, and uh, that's important this season because as as this year has uh, ha- has gone along, it's become pretty clear that there's not a whole lot of depth on the offensive line, and I think a lot of that had to do with I, I think the I think the coaching staff was caught a little bit by surprise that both Cody Ford and Bobby Evans left early. 
And uh, you could tell this year at times they were kind of scrambling a bit because they got R.J. Proctor in the transfer portal. Um, they've moved guys around as there's been injuries and whatnot. And so uh, a restocking of the offensive line is a big deal, especially because it's just very rare that guys are good enough to come in right away and play. And uh, I think in, in this group, it sounds like maybe Andrew Rame could be a guy who is capable of coming in and playing right away. Uh, he is a guy who's an interior offensive lineman, maybe a center. And with Creed Humphrey leaving, maybe he's a guy who can, who can play a little bit uh, this upcoming year. But we, we've just seen it too many times in the past with really highly touted offensive linemen. They don't come in and play right away. They just don't do it. Uh, we saw it with, we've seen it with Bray Walker, who is maybe the highest rated offensive lineman they've signed in, I don't know, decades. And he hasn't really played a, a huge prominent role yet, even, even yet. I think this is, his, uh, this is his second season on campus. Stacey Wilkins was, was the most highly touted guy in the last recruiting class. And, you know, he saw a cup of coffee early on in the season, but I, I don't think we're going to see in, him in any sort of prominent role until, uh, until next year at the earliest. But yeah, the offensive line class, it, it, looks, it looks great. Maybe the best offensive line class in the country. And, uh, and, it, and it should be. Bill Beanbow is, is the best offensive line coach in college football. Uh, but other than that, just it seems like another great offensive class. Guys that, that, are, that are impressive to me. Seth McGowan, the lone running back in this group. And I know Jace McClellan looks like a very likely decommitment. Nothing is, has, he hasn't signed yet at all today, but it, it looks like he's going to be an Alabama commit at the end of the day. Uh, Seth McGowan is a guy who looks, who reminds me a lot of Rodney Anderson when I watch him. Um, and so that's just, it's, it's just never going to be a bad, uh, a bad deal when you get someone like that. Jalen Conyers is a, is an athletic, wiry, long, big, tight end. And I, I just, no matter what, I don't think you can have, you, I don't think you can have enough of those guys. Uh, he is a consensus top 250 recruit in the country, which means he does have some ability. And uh, I, I just would not be upset at all if OU does everything in their power to stockpile guys like these uh, because they're invaluable, really. Uh, a guy that I think is really sneaky, especially according to recruiting services, not very sneaky at all once you look at the season, the, the, the senior year that he had, is a receiver Marvin Mims. And I think this is one of their best signings of this class. Uh, guys, Marvin Mims was the Texas Offensive Player of the Year in Texas, I think playing in the highest class. Uh, he broke, I think, the Texas high school career record for receiving yards in a career. He's got he he's just, he's got a lot of Ryan Broyles in his game, and um, this is a guy who is not a consensus top 250 recruit, which surprises me based off the season he's had playing Texas high school football. Um, this is a great signing for OU. The, the the other guys who weren't necessarily, I'm thinking in the past, guys that OU have signed that have come from really high-class Texas football and have put up monster numbers but weren't necessarily like five-star guys or guys that every every uh, uh, team in the country was going after. The last three guys I can think of that kind of fit that description are Rodney Anderson, Kennedy Brooks, and C.D. Lamb. And I know C.D. was a top 100 recruit um, but somehow wasn't a five-star guy, which when you watch him now, that's just that's ridiculous. Um, and you know those last three guys that OU has has signed under that classification, it's turned out really well for them. So Marvin Mims is a guy that I think is going to have a really productive career at OU in the slot, and uh, really excited about that signing. And then the other one that that really stood out to me that I like is Mikey Henderson. He's a he's a six one, two hundred and forty pounder. He's also from Texas, and he is made perfect for this H back role, the Dimitri Flowers role. Um, I think he was recruited specifically to fit that role, and he's a guy who I think is probably going to be the best athlete they've had at that position, uh, maybe ever. And so everyone knows how important and how valuable that role can be. So get like a, a really good athlete, a guy who is a top 250 recruit in the country at that role. Uh, I think OU is going to be going to be cooking with fire there, and I and I'm really excited. Cooking with fire, cooking with gas. I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, overall a, a great offensive class. Uh, I, I think OU fans should be pretty happy uh, with this class. All right, I'll play Grant's defensive thoughts here in a bit, and uh, he mentioned Jace McClellan again. He recorded that Wednesday, so uh, McClellan now is officially signed with Alabama. All right, let's turn our attention to the Peach Bowl now. And with the news that Ronnie Perkins will be suspended, a natural question is, who's going to play that defensive end role? And I think true freshman Marcus Stripling is naturally the first person that a lot of you will think of. Maybe not. That's the first person I thought of. Uh, 
but Stripling, he's a player. He's played sparingly this year. Six tackles, has has a sack uh, in 2019. He was a four-star recruit, and he's built very much like Ronnie Perkins. Stripling is 6'3", 247, and Perkins is 6'3", 250, according to Oklahoma's website. So uh, I want to give credit to Tyler Palmatier of the Norman Transcript for fitting in a question about Marcus Stripling to Alex Grinch on Wednesday. Tyler asked if Stripling is a player who's earned a chance to have more of an expanded role. His practice uh, has uh, is steadily improved. I, th- I think he's a guy that uh, uh, certainly we're excited about. I think his best football is in front of him. He, he does have a, a, a element of speed um, that that uh, is brings a lot to that position. Uh, the physicality that that uh, is is different in, in college versus uh, high school is always a transition. Anytime you're talking about guys on your defensive front, and so that that's the hardest. The hardest transition is for those guys because there's just a different handle going against a 300-pound guy over and over and over again. And so that's something that uh, he continues to work through, understanding the defense and all those things. But he's pro- certainly progress is being made. He's finding uh, some time on the field and, and, and something that we'll continue to look to get more of. So it sounds like the physicality of the position is still an issue for Stripling, which is not that surprising considering the amount of punishment you've got to take and absorb as a defensive lineman at the, the highest level of college football. So we'll see how Grinch adjusts without Ronnie Perkins. Obviously, Kenneth Mann is unavailable. You know, originally I kind of thought about the idea of kicking LaRon Stokes over to the defensive end position to see what he's got there. Stokes hasn't made much of an impact recently inside. Does that mean that his play has dropped off or that it's just incredibly difficult at this point to get reps when Neville Gallimore, Jalen Redmond, Marquez Overton, Dylan Famatahu are all there and, and have provided great depth and and also some great play up front and you got Isaiah Thomas who's an option for more playing time as well 6'5 250 we all remember he had a sack against Baylor in the Big 12 title game and you know the more I've been thinking about this and I saved this for the very end throw all these names out there and it kind of hit me that the play is probably going to be to experiment with Jalen Redmond as the defensive end wouldn't you all think I think Grant kind of touched on that a bit uh, earlier when he was going over all the the his thoughts on the suspension I think I think he might have brought up Jalen Redmond and he's a player that we all thought would be a rush linebacker type candidate or you know at least somebody who would be asked to rush the passer off the edge fortunately he was healthy enough to play in the Big 12 title game there were some question marks going into the game about his health I do remember hearing reports about his shoulder being separated a bunch in that game and being set, and then he kept playing and kept playing. So hopefully he's going to be good to go for the Peach Bowl, and hopefully he's, he's as close to 100% as he possibly could be. So I think he might be the guy you see filling in for Perkins, especially because up front Oklahoma's depth in the interior defensive line has actually been pretty solid. I mean, you, you get Perkins out of – I'm sorry, you get uh, Redmond out of there. You still got, of course, Gallimore, Overton, Famatahu, and then – you can throw Stokes in there as well. So there's some players that they can they can fill in there, and they could somewhat afford to lose Redmond, if you will, if they want to experiment with him at the defensive end spot. I've got one more soundbite to play from Alex Grinch, but I'm going to save it for later when we talk about LSU and Joe Burrow. Grinch was at Ohio State when Burrow was there, so Grinch is, of course, familiar with that player, and Grinch compared Burrow Wednesday to some other elite college quarterbacks that he's seen in the past, so listen for who he mentions. Let's go over to the Oklahoma offense now. We got a chance to talk to Jalen Hurts and Creed Humphrey Wednesday, and man, I got to tell you, not a lot of interesting content from those guys, each of them not that interested in saying anything inflammatory or out of the box, just pretty much cut and dry team speak, if you will, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. But just to give you a, a bit of a taste of what I mean, I asked those guys a couple of questions. Let's start with the QB1, Jalen Hurts. You know, you know exactly what you need to do to prepare for these playoff games because you've done it so many times. With the spe- uh, sped-up process, though, only three weeks, I think, between Big 12 and this time, do you feel like there's, there are certain things you got to do a little quicker than maybe you're, you're used to doing in the, in the past when you're ready for these playoff games? No, I think um, the whole general basis of this is what we want to do is just get better every day and prepare the right way, have the right intent, focus on what we do. Pretty standard reply from Jalen. So when Creed Comfrey talked and came in, you know, I was curious if Jalen Hurts has been able to provide any tips for properly preparing for a playoff game. 
you know, considering Hertz has been in this type of situation a lot more than any other player on this Oklahoma roster, I was just curious if, if he's been able to provide any insight. So here's that exchange I had with Creed Humphrey. You know, since Jalen's done this more than when you've been on the roster, is there any tips and, and tricks that maybe he's conveyed to you all that you didn't know before that helps you get ready for a playoff game? Uh, no, not really. You know, uh, he's just approached this like any other game, really. You know, he doesn't want to make this you know, a huge deal, you know. So uh, just really just come in, you know, with the right mindset each time. So that's how it's been for sure. Here's the deal. I hope that all of this is a load of garbage. And in actuality, Jalen Hurts has added some different ways to get ready for a playoff game that he learned back at Alabama. And, you know, a big reason why a lot of us were excited about the addition of Jalen Hurts was his Alabama background. He's coming from an elite national championship winning culture, which is something that nobody on this Oklahoma roster or this Oklahoma coaching staff has any idea about, at least at the Division One level. So, there's not a whole lot of insights you heard there from Jalen Hurts or Creed Humphrey, and that's okay. That's okay. Those guys are going to have another chance to say pretty much nothing yet again next week before they play that game in Atlanta. All right, before I get to my thoughts on that LSU-Florida game, let's head back to recruiting and back to Grant for one final time on this podcast. He has some thoughts on the defensive players that Oklahoma signed on Wednesday. All right, and as we move to the uh, to the defensive class, I think there's definitely quite a bit more question marks on this side of the ball um, because, really, the recruiting services don't think this side of the ball they they did as as good of a job on, and uh, you know that can always change. And um, and, uh, and recruiting rankings aren't everything, but they're certainly important. So, but you know, start first, and I think the the, the you know the crown jewel of this of, of this defensive class are the two junior college defensive tackles that they got, and if I'm breaking any news to you, those two defensive tackles are Perry and Winfrey and Josh Ellison. Uh, these are the um, so Perry and Winfrey is the consensus number one JUCO player in the country. Uh, that's a guy. That's an NFL body if I've ever seen one. Uh, that's a guy who who has a very high ceiling. If you just look at his body, his size, his length, his tape, it's it's pretty impressive. Uh, and the other guy, Josh Ellison, also a pretty big dude. He's 6'3", 295. He was, the, uh, he was the number two defensive tackle in the JUCO ranks. So OU did sign the two best defensive linemen in, in, in JUCO uh, in this recruiting cycle, and, and I'll take that any day. I, I think that is very important. Um, and that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about you know where they, you know, how they project out next year at that position because Neville Gallimore and... Marquez Overton are, are graduating and so they have a pretty big a pretty big hole to fill there I think Winfrey and Ellison gives them two pretty good options there um, and you know that's that that's a pretty big deal looking at the other guys uh, I, I think Bryson Washington is probably the other guy that you really want to point and look at and say yeah yeah that that's a good get uh, big four-star safety he's he's big he's long he's wire I think he's 6'2 200 pounds kind of exactly what Alex Grinch is looking like and actually if you look up and down this defensive signing class what you see is length and size. And so, uh, you know, like I said with Bryson Washington, they also got they got another commitment today uh, who wasn't previously committed from Kendall Dennis out of Lakeland, Florida. He's a three-star cornerback. He's six feet tall and uh, don't really know a whole lot about him. I'll have to do a little more research on him. And then when you go down the list a little further, that's when you kind of, you, when you come across the guys, in my opinion, when you look at them, they're, they're, they're kind of question marks and you sort of question where they fit in at OU. Uh, but then when you look at their size, you kind of start to understand why they're there. And so those three guys are, are Noah Renzi, Shane Witter, and Brendan Walker. Uh, Renzi is a, is a defensive end who's a three-star guy uh, who, you know, is not a, not a blue-chip recruit at all. But as soon as you look at his size, you kind of start to understand, okay, this is why they want him. The guy's 6'5 and a half, 240 pounds. That's a lot of length. That's a lot of athleticism, presumably, and they think that he's probably a guy that they can groom uh, into an elite pass rusher, you know, perhaps. Uh, Brendan Walker, he's a guy from Bishop McGinnis in Oklahoma City, and uh, he's an outside linebacker. And man, you know, I he's a guy who, when you look at his the recruiting service, he's only a three-star recruit per twenty-four-seven. He's the six hundred twenty-fifth ranked guy in the in the country, but he's a guy when I look at his tape. That's one where the tape really jumps out at me, and I say, "Whoa, that guy is good." So typically, when I look at when I'm looking at high school tape, I'm looking at guys who are just so clearly better than everyone on the field, and it's obvious. 
because that's you know for me that's that's easy. It's easy to to you know to to look at a guy like that, and that's what I see with Brendan Walker. That's a guy who's just better than everyone else. And you look at his size on the edge as an outside linebacker, six three and a half at two hundred and thirty pounds. That's probably a guy that they could they could groom into a defensive end as well. Uh, and really, he's got the size of that you would like from a high schooler for like a three four defensive end. So I like that. I like size. I like length, especially on the edge like that. Um, and then uh, the one that is the biggest head scratcher to me is is Shane Witter, and um, you know w- when I watch, he's an inside linebacker, six foot, two hundred twenty two pounds. He's from Burlington, North Carolina, and he was a guy who uh, who replaced a, a linebacker decommitment that they had a, a month or two ago, Edrin Edrin Cooper. And um, when I watched, when I compare both of those guys' tape, I mean it's like night and day. Edrin Cooper is a lot better player. Um, and so this is one where I'm not sure what happened. Was it, did Edron Cooper get a, get an offer that he wanted? I think he's, he's a, he's a Louisiana guy who I think eventually got an LSU offer. Um, and maybe that's why they, maybe that's why he decommitted. I really hope this isn't a situation where they liked Witter better and just said, Edron, sorry, find somewhere else as we like this guy better. Cause when I look at their tape, Edron Cooper just is just a much more impactful player Shane Witter's tape reminds me a lot of someone like Jonathan Perkins, who when I watched it, I just I just didn't understand what the guy what the what the coaching staff saw. So I hope this is one where I just I'm totally over my skis and I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but he's the signing that kind of gives me the most pause because I, I I I don't I'm not seeing what the coaching staff is seeing there when I watch his tape. Um, other than that, though, I think they are expecting um, another JUCO safety commit. At, at a certain point in time today, by the time that you're listening to this, it's probably already happened, but I think he's another uh, he's another highly ranked top 10 Juco guy who is a safety, I think, who has some size, some length, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, his name is escaping me, but I'm sure uh, other people will remind me of that. And another guy who it's kind of an interesting case, Reggie Grimes. He was a commit that they got, I think, a few weeks ago, and he is a he's a He's an elite defensive recruit. This guy's a defensive end, 6'3 and a half, 242 pounds. He's a top 100 recruit in the country. Uh, yeah, he he committed just after Thanksgiving. Uh, he's the number one player in Tennessee. So this would be the second straight year that uh, that that the Sooners have pulled in the number one player out of Tennessee. And in a weird that he did not sign today in early signing day. And so typically that's probably maybe uh, uh, something to be worried about. I do find it odd that he, I mean, he committed just just a few weeks ago. So uh, this is just something to kind of keep your eye out on. This is a, this would be a big time, a big time get for OU if if Reggie Grimes can kind of sign on the dotted line. That would make this defensive line class for Oklahoma a really really good one. And so I think that one is uh, that one's important for the coaches to to close on. Um, but other than that, you know, other I think other stuff might pop up after I've recorded this. Um, and if there's anything that pops up that I, that I find a big deal, I will certainly comment on it on, on future episodes. All right. So those are Grant's thoughts on the defensive players that Oklahoma signed. I think the Juco D back he was talking about, and if I'm wrong about this, I apologize. Again, I've just, I'm not an expert on this. I'm looking at, uh, rivals right now. Maybe it's Justin Harrington, a six, three safety. It looks like he was at Bakersfield community college. So those of you who listen to this podcast that know a lot more about recruiting than I do are either saying, yep, that's him, or saying, what are you talking about? And you know what? I'm okay with it because that's fine. I'll, if he's important, I'll learn about this stuff later, especially after Oklahoma's season is over and they don't have a college football playoff game coming up in the next week. So speaking of that college football playoff game, let's talk more specifically about Oklahoma's foe, the LSU Tigers. And a couple of days ago, Grant and I extensively broke down that September LSU-Texas game. And now I've watched the LSU-Florida game from October the 12th. The Gators gave the Tigers a pretty big-time test in Baton Rouge. And at one point in that game, Florida led 28-21 in the third quarter. LSU went on to score the next 14 points to take a seven-point lead. Florida put together a great drive in the fourth quarter, got into the red zone trying to tie the game. But quarterback Kyle Trask ended up throwing a terrible interception in the end zone. And that was followed by LSU getting the knockout punch with a Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase 50-plus yard touchdown pass with about five minutes to go. So that basically ended that game, LSU, with the two-touchdown win. So let's start with the Florida defense. And 
How did the Gators attack LSU? And as of this recording, Florida has the 10th ranked defense in college football, allowing 4.8 yards per play. LSU in that game, though, put up 511 yards, 42 points, and averaged 10.6 yards per play against Florida's defense. Florida only got LSU into third down four times. LSU, though, was only one for four on those third downs. It is worth mentioning LSU, uh, Florida rather, the defense is very highly ranked, technically a top 10 defense. But I got to mention that LSU was by far the best offensive team Florida saw all season long. Outside of the Tigers, Auburn and Georgia were the best offenses that Florida saw in 2019. The Gators beat Auburn 24 to 13. Auburn's offense is, is about middle of the road. It may be slightly above average, 53rd in the nation, only 5.6 yards per play. And then you got Georgia, who I would also describe as above average to you know maybe maybe good sometimes uh not particularly scary 60th in total offense just over six yards per play nothing to write home about uh georgia put up 24 and beat florida uh, averaging 5.9 yards per play in that game so those are the only aside from lsu those are the best offenses that that florida saw so the point i have in bringing this up is that florida's defense is very highly ranked but outside of three games, the Gators played just atrocious offenses in 2019. That being said, I keep kind of making counterpoints, but I have to be clear. Florida's probably a better defense in Oklahoma, especially since the Sooners are not going to be at full strength. So I don't think we should pretend like Oklahoma's defense is all of a sudden better than Florida. That would be drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit too much. So even though I was kind of dogging Florida a little bit, I know they didn't play much competition, but it's a solid to, to really good defense, and it's probably a better defense than Oklahoma. Now, I was curious to see how that defense, that Florida defense, attacked LSU's offense. And what I saw were principles similar to what Texas tried to do, basically being pretty aggressive, healthy amount of man coverage, sometimes splitting the field between man and zone. And when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Florida gave LSU cushion on the outside, Joe Burrow usually took what he was given, and that allowed his talented receivers to make catches and then run after the catch. LSU punted just twice and missed a field goal in the game. And unfortunately for us, Florida didn't provide much resistance in the game. Now, remember against Texas, LSU was predominantly an 11 personnel, which again means one running back, one tight end. Well, against Florida, I saw the Tigers once again use a lot of 11 personnel, but they also added in a healthy amount of 12 personnel, which is one running back, two tight ends. The tight ends were number 81 Thaddeus Moss and number 10 Steven Sullivan. Usually an 11 personnel, LSU went with Moss as its main tight end. The duo on the night against Florida combined for four catches for 43 yards. Now, LSU continued, like against Texas, to never huddle. So that's just that's their offense. They don't huddle. Uh, they ran tempo at times. And it's clear to me now that after just two games, that LSU, what it wants to do, it gets to the line. Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger looks over the defense, as well, of course, as uh, Joe Burrow does, and they call plays based on what you're showing them. You'll see, uh, you'll see off of a chunk play that they get, for instance. Maybe LSU gains a good amount of yards on first down, and it brings up a second down, or it brings down a third down and short. You see LSU like to go up-tempo, hurry up, get to the line, snap it really quickly, and run a simple inside zone play to pick up a couple of yards for the first down to move the chain so they can keep it going, keep it going. They like to run that inside zone quite a bit out of – out of tight trips, tight three-by-one sets. Saw that a lot against Texas. It continued against Florida. LSU used mostly three-by-one and two-by-two two sets in that game against Florida. And the tight end, Steven Sullivan, would line up wide quite a bit in two-by-two two sets. And Thaddeus Moss would line up as the slot guy on the other side of the formation quite a bit of times. Talked about motion and shifts quite a bit. Last episode, LSU didn't do it a lot. And so I made sure to pay attention against Florida again. And once again, motion and shifting was limited. I counted only six times in the game where LSU sent a player in motion or shifted pre-snap. That's it. So if Oklahoma can find a way to disguise what it's trying to run on defense, the Sooners may be able to confuse LSU every once in a while. It's not going to happen the majority of the time, but maybe every once in a while. And 
I do like the idea of LSU's offense showing Oklahoma the formation right away. It limits the chances of confusion in man and zone concepts. Then it will be up to Oklahoma, obviously, to execute the defense that's called. Like in the Texas game, run plays, mostly inside zone. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire had a field day against Florida, 13 carries. He racked up 134 yards and a pair of touchdowns. And then even Tyrion or Tyrion Davis-Price, he had a long touchdown run on an inside zone play. LSU's run game is shockingly simple. And I think that's because Burrow's ability to kill teams through the air. Teams are so afraid of the pass that LSU doesn't need to have much of a complicated run game at all. No polling for the most part. They'll block the tight end down every once in a while when he's an up back. But that's about it. You'll run a bunch of inside zone. I saw once or twice a little bit of outside zone. But running the ball is so simple in LSU's offense. Florida wasn't able to get to Burrow at all. Wasn't able to sack him. Uh, he continued to display fantastic mobility and pocket presence. Oklahoma's front is going to have to play its best game ever to bring him down behind the line. I mean, he is so good at avoiding pressure and getting away from things. He knows when to eject from the pocket and then pick up positive yards when nothing is there. One of the few times Florida got him behind the chains in the second half, it was second and 12, and Florida rushed four, dropped seven, Nobody was spying Burrow, so when Burrow saw that nobody was open, he was able to step up and then scramble for 20 yards. Boom, easy first down. So if Oklahoma puts a spy on Burrow, though, that's one less player in pass coverage. So, man, the pocket will just it will somehow need to be contained. But Oklahoma, we've seen this year, guys, the Sooners have not been great against mobile and running quarterbacks this year. So this whole aspect of LSU – and that offense and Burrow, it, not just his arm, his legs, it's just it's terrifying to me. Like the Texas game, Burrow was fantastic in this game as well. He was 21 of 24, 293, and three touchdowns. Uh, and, and get this, LSU barely had the football. Time of possession favored Florida nearly 2-1, to one, which is probably the formula that's best suited for Oklahoma to win a couple of Saturdays from now. And yet, LSU was still able to score 42 points on the Gators with limited snaps. They ran less than 50 plays. I teased earlier an Alex Grinch soundbite, his thoughts on Joe Burrow. Let's go to that right now. The ability to, to move the pocket, extend plays, to throw on the run. And then in those, uh, you know, with those attributes, what ends up happening, you know, you just you imagine being an offense coordinator, the confidence that you have that you can't call a bad play. And then all of a sudden it, it uh, uh, can, can get real scary and it has in, in, in terms of uh, for defenses. And so, um, you know, I think about Sam Darnold in years past, you know, uh, and, and I'm certainly you know, Joe Flacco years and years ago uh, were guys that, uh, you know, you saw on film and they immediately didn't take a whole lot of uh, many clips where you just kind of get wild by him and and, and uh so no he, he's certainly in that uh in that category elite so that's alex grinch on joe burrow did not see joe flacco coming when he was talking about elite kind of more mobile quarterbacks i'm not an expert on joe flacco's college career at delaware so you know maybe he was a lot more mobile back in his college days i don't know but uh, uh there's alex grinch on burrow all right finally let's go over to that oklahoma offense which means that we're going to go over to the lsu defense and like in the Texas game, I saw LSU play man coverage with its cornerbacks on the outside pretty much the entire game. So this might just be a thing for LSU. Obviously, I'll have to watch more games and I'll get more thoughts when I get more film under my belt. But with that in mind, here's a smart thing that Florida did that was basically a free 15-plus yard play in the game against those outside corners that are going to play aggressive man and just in general against man coverage. So the second series of the game, they had a fantastic play design that exploited LSU's tendency to play that straight man coverage on the outside with his corners. Florida was in three-by-one set. They had trips to the field side. LSU it actually showed man across the board with a single high safety. Inside slot in trips runs a bubble screen. And Grant Delpit, the talented safety for LSU, that's his guy. And he's so aggressive. He just immediately, he sees that, that bubble screen action. He attacks the line of scrimmage. The outside receiver then runs a quick little five-yard curl. So if you do the math there, that's two LSU defenders 
now up kind of near the line of scrimmage. So that left the middle receiver in the trip set running a corner route against soft man coverage. And the route takes him into the vacated area behind the cornerback where, where the cornerback would have been if if a receiver was running a fade, for instance. And there's a lot of grass there by the sideline. He was wide open for an easy 18-yard gain against the, the safety who was playing off of him, playing man coverage. So that was an interesting concept that I liked. More Florida offensive concepts that worked, it seemed. It seemed like Florida liked to use the tight end, its tight end, as a matchup advantage against smaller corners. And what Florida would do, they'd line up their big tight end with the hand in the ground. They'd split three wide receivers to the field side. The tight end would be on the back side. And what Florida would do, I saw them do this twice, they ran a post route with the tight end who would be picked up in man by a corner with outside leverage. And the key to this play is that you get the throw past that middle linebacker who both times didn't seem to be paying much attention to the backside tight end because he was probably more concerned with the trips receivers to the the strength of the formation and so that worked twice for florida running the tight end on a on a post across the field uh, with that man coverage with uh, you know, outside leverage basically opening it up to where there's a, a lot of green grass to throw the ball to the tight end also, too, just one time I saw Florida implement the old play action pop pass to the tight end. They showed a replay of a time when Florida didn't run it early in the game where if they would have run it, it would have gone for 50 yards. And so they came back to it and they picked up like 10 yards in the first down. So it wasn't as explosive. But uh, you got the sense that Florida could have done that more because LSU was attacking and not respecting Kyle Trask's ability to run the ball, and obviously Jalen Hurts is more of a runner than uh, Kyle Trask. So I noticed a play on third down and nine. So third and long, Florida had the football. LSU brought a blitz, played man across the board with a single high safety, and Kyle Trask did a nice job. He avoided the pressure well. He starts to scramble, but he gets tackled by Grant Delpit before the first down. And the only reason why Delpit was able to make this play was because his man ran an eight-yard curl, so Delpit had his eyes turned towards the middle of the field where Trask was scrambling. Now, if his man had ran a deeper route or a crosser and, and washed Delpit out of the play, Trask gets the first down easily. And so the reason I bring this up is I have a question. How much will LSU spy Jalen Hurts? And how fresh and how effective will Hurts be with his legs against LSU? The past month or so, I think Hertz has just looked slow. I mean, I was watching some old highlights from earlier in the season against Houston and against UCLA. He looks so much more speedy, a lot more pop, looked quicker. And it goes without saying that a mobile, hard to tackle, somewhat quick Jalen Hurts is going to be a bit of a problem for LSU. And I'm not sure if I'm going to watch this game back, but I know Ole Miss with its quarterback had a ton of success running the ball against LSU just he had like over 200 yards rushing granted I've seen a little bit of that he's a lot more of a dynamic athlete than Jalen Hurts a lot quicker so uh, not the same kind of quarterback as Hurts got some more ideas on attacking this LSU defense uh, again those cornerbacks man up the entire time on the outside so you run the outside cornerbacks out of the picture down the field on goes and then have your running backs go out of the backfield, maybe lined up against a linebacker. That's a nice little one-on-one -on -one that I'd prefer Kennedy Brooks be against one of those LSU linebackers. So there's an idea. I might need to see some of that. All, this is a, a really clever third down and long play that I only saw one time, but maybe because it only would work one time. A boundary wide receiver screen uh, with two wide receivers to that side of the field. So what I saw was they ran the split out wide receiver on a slant because, of course, you know that cornerback is going to be in man. You know that outside. So you, you run across the field, you run that corner out of there. And what Florida did that was clever. They ran an offensive lineman out to block the man who was on the inside receiver who was going to be receiving the ball. And you throw that screen pass out there, make sure it's behind the line of scrimmage, and that offensive lineman can get up the field and make a block. And what it did is created essentially a three on two. And Florida did a great job on third down and 10, picked up 20 yards in the fourth quarter, I believe, deep in its own territory. It was a great play call. I mentioned a third and long play earlier that Kyle Trask made a nice, nice play, scramble, but then was stopped. I will say 
if Oklahoma's in third and long, it could be a really long night. But you could say that about any game because you get in third and long multiple times, you're gonna you're gonna lose. But the reason I bring it up here is that I noticed a play on third down in the second half. LSU on third down likes to stunt up front, and it just it seems like the rush ends, the defensive ends of the guys on the outside, they're not going to come from the outside. They're going to stunt back on the inside. And I saw an example of this where perfectly Trask had no shot. He got sacked on third and long. It was a three and out right after LSU had tied the game. The defense got a three and out, and then the offense got the ball back and went down and scored. Did notice a couple times where they both did not stunt to the inside. One person would do it. So it's not automatic every single time, but uh, that's one of the interesting pass rushes that LSU has that did not look promising for Oklahoma if they get into a third and long spot. And finally, maybe the most important, not necessarily easiest way, but something that we can take from last year's game against Alabama that Oklahoma took too long to, to get to before actually utilizing it, and it worked attack these cornerbacks with back shoulder throws on the outside florida began the second half with the same exact play back to back picking on Derek stingley out there and all the way down the field florida got the ball just picking on stingley all the way down the field finally there was a touchdown pass on a little a, a nice slant route that made it 28 21 florida in the third quarter remember back to the alabama game last year it seemed like it took until Oklahoma was down 28 to nothing for Kyler Murray, Lincoln Riley, just to say, you know what, we got to get the ball to CeeDee Lamb, back shoulder throws, a lot of tight man coverage from Alabama. We'll just time it up. We'll have Kyler throw it on you know 10 yards, turn around, CeeDee, the ball is there. It's worked a couple of – excuse me, this worked a couple of times for Florida, but they didn't go to it a lot. They, they, this has got to be a big part of Oklahoma's game plan. they got to attack – these outside corners with back shoulder throws. Let C.D. Lamb body guys up. Heck, send uh, Austin Stogner out there on the outside. Let him just box people out. Granted, he's young, so maybe they won't do that. But uh, give it to your your super talented Theo Weiss, Jaden Hazelwood. Back shoulder throws are your best friend. Okay, so there you have it. Everything you ever wanted to know about that LSU-Florida game and how it may or may not pertain to Oklahoma's matchup with the Tigers in the Peach Bowl. Gang, that's all I've got for you today. Unfortunately, I'm unable to give you a concrete day that the next episode is going to be released. We're obviously going to have at least one more final episode before the game on the 28th. We're going to try to get you at least two more episodes before kickoff. Of course, we got Christmas next week. That's going to be a whole thing. I'll be working all week at News 9, so we'll try to get away. But uh, there will be at least one more episode before the game. Hopefully we can get to. Until next time, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.